0: You can have all this world, but give me Jesus. Well, it's one thing to sing, it's another thing to live it. But that's where we find ourselves today. As we start a series that will take however long it takes, I've been wanting to do this for about two years, and God has given us leave and direction to start today. Today. So I want you to turn with me in your Bibles to the Old Testament book of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes, and we're going to be going line upon line and precept upon precept as we seek to preach the whole counsel of God through this book. Ecclesiastes, what an interesting book. Many Commentators believe that Solomon, and we'll get to it in just a moment, that Solomon is the author and he no doubt penned uh, Proverbs, Song of Solomon, and Ecclesiastes. And many believe that he wrote uh, Song of Solomon Proverbs in the middle of his life when he was serving God and everything was going very well for him. But Ecclesiastes are the kind of words that you write toward the end of your life after you have kind of figured out some things and you have learned the hard way. And I'm afraid that Solomon learned the hard way. The sad truth is his epitaph is that of a king that did not please God. Though one was gifted with some of the greatest gifts this world has ever known. Solomon died a broken man, and as far as we know, died out of fellowship with God. God could have removed his anointing, and God could have removed many things from his life, and no doubt he missed the personal blessings of a relationship, but God kept his hand on him, for he was the son of David, and it was through his lineage that the Messiah would eventually come. Today, as we begin, we have questions that arise in our life, and we're going to study throughout this book on this subject, the laboratory of life. Now, just about everyone has done some kind of science experiment or lab in their life. The one that sticks in my mind, the fun one, was bacon soda and vinegar, And uh, now the cool thing is, you know, soda and Mentos. Uh, That's a pretty cool deal. But we would take the baking soda and we'd, you know, however, through mud and whatever, the mixture, we'd make a volcano and we'd pour the baking soda down in it. And then we would pour the vinegar over the top and it would bubble up like uh, an exploding volcano. Much more advanced in life. Science was not always my gig. But when I got to uh, my doctoral work, they said, now, you're taking the doctor of ministry, which is different than a PhD. A PhD, you will pick a subject, it will be approved, and you just write for years on it. And you write everything you know about it, and then we'll approve it when you get to the end or not approve it. But in the doctor of ministry degree, this is a professional doctorate. You have got to come up with an idea, a major ministry project where you put forth a thesis and you put forth a hypothesis. And then if we approve that, you write a prospectus. And then you have to develop this whole idea uh, of yours that Uh, Your thesis, my thesis was, I believed that if we would practice the biblical discipline of fasting, that it would directly correlate with evangelism. That when we seek God through fasting, prayer and fasting, then our relationship with God would grow closer and the closer we grew in a relationship with the Lord, the more we would see through his eyes the lostness of the world and our burdens would grow to the point we would lead more people to the Lord. Well, I couldn't just say that. I had to do a lab on it. I had to write everything to teach a group. I had to have a benchmark group Who did nothing. They didn't have to sit through my lessons. They didn't have to fast. They just had to take an entrance exam and an exit exam. That's all they had to do. And then the other group who was willing to participate, they took the entrance exam. Then I taught them for eight weeks on the biblical discipline of fasting. All the way back from the first ordered fast in Leviticus before the Day of Atonement, through God's ordered, chosen fast of Isaiah 58, through Esther's fast, through Samuel's fast, through Daniel's fast, and then why the disciples did and didn't, and why we fast even to today. And once we got through that, then we had a season of fasting. And once we went through that, we then come back months later, and we took an exit exam. And I had to put them up against each other. Did this group who studied God's word of fasting and fasted, did they exercise their heart for the lost more than the other group did? And then we weighed the outcome. Well, in the book of Ecclesiastes, throughout this entire book, we will see different lab experiments, we will see where the, the scientist, if you will, the teacher puts up a hypothesis is money better than God is wealth and fortune is fame and prosperity is land and work is all of these things better than God. And then we'll hear, as Paul Harvey used to say, the rest of the story. But today we begin in Exodus one. do Don't you think that's a pretty good place to start? Ecclesiastes, what did I say? Exodus. Exodus. Well, Exodus is a good place because they were... Li- I'm so old. Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes 1. The words... Of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem, vanity of vanities, saith the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What profit hath a man of all his labor, which he taketh under the sun? What? That sounds like a bunch of fun reading, doesn't it? I mean, over and over and over and over again, we will hear the word vanity, vain, uh, vexation of spirit, that which tears down. And we'll get into that further. But first of all, as we begin the laboratory of life, understand this is an autobiography. This is Solomon writing about his life. And so we begin by looking at the teacher. Look what he said in verse 1, were the words of the preacher. Now, this word, preacher, is the Hebrew word, koaleth. And some have proffered that this was a different person than Solomon. But there's some keys to it that I believe tells us very expressly who the preacher is. The son of David, king in Jerusalem. Now, based on timing and based on the authorship and all of the literary work surrounding it, we know the timing to be that of Solomon. And we know Solomon was the son of David, and we know he was the king in Jerusalem. And so we begin by looking at, you know, if you're going to study under someone and really want to learn, then you want to know the person who's teaching you is qualified, right? I mean, more than just the fact they stayed in a Holiday Inn Express last night. And so we need to understand who this teacher is. And as we begin to explore this book, as we turn page after page, understand we're still talking about Solomon, the son of David. Now imagine, if you will, what Solomon grew up with. Put yourself right where Solomon is at this time. Solomon, no doubt, is an old man. But imagine the things Solomon has seen, the things he has heard. Now, many of us here, our dads were our heroes and we heard about all the stories and the things they did when they were in the military and the things they did when they were young. And man, they, you know, they, they'd build a hot rod out of baling wire and, and some duct tape and they'd fix things together and they'd make it all work. And it is amazing to listen to the, what they could do with so little Solomon, no doubt grew up hearing of the stories of his dad, who, this little shepherd boy on the back of the field, can you imagine sitting there around the fire when David said, son, let me tell you about when God sent the prophet. Oh, I was just minding my business. I was the youngest of all the rest of my brothers. Boy, I had some tough brothers. Man, we would get into it. We'd go at it. And it just toughened me up. And I didn't understand why I had to be the baby. I didn't understand why. I'd have to go through all that stuff. And they were always on me. But I learned how to defend myself. And I learned God had put me right where I needed to be for what I was about to face in my life. You see, son, when I was growing up with them older brothers, I didn't know one day that I would have to face a bear and a lion. But I did. And God had allowed me through my teaching and through the hard knocks of life... To be prepared. I had no idea. That God would send the prophet. But he did. And he went over my brother and said. No that's not him. No that's not him. No that's not him. And I'm still out there in the back of the field. And my daddy. Your grandfather hollered. And said go get my boy David. And I come running. Because son that's what we do. We honor. And we obey our dads. And I came running. And my dad Jesse took me. And he put his arm around me and he said to the prophet, this is all I've got left. Now, son, I'm going to tell you, that didn't make me real proud the way daddy said that. But I was all that was left. And all of a sudden I was looking down the long finger of the prophet of God when he pointed at me and said, you're the man. You're the man. And for a moment, son, I wanted to be real proud and I looked over at my brothers and I just kind of gave them a little wink and said, yeah, how about that, boys? Until the reality of the responsibility sank in. God had just chosen me to be the king. We just started with kings. There had only been one. Solomon? Who was I going to talk to? Saul, you know, and so, but God worked it out and all of a sudden... I'm dating Saul's daughter. But you need to understand, then Saul began to hate me. And Saul tried to kill me. And oh, the dark days. Do you understand, son, that I ran for 30 years? Because Saul was still on his throne. But you, want, you need to understand something, Solomon. Solomon as long as he was still breathing, he was still king and I was going to respect that. I could have killed him. I could have run him out. Oh, you need to understand. It taught me a very valuable lesson because there was a day when your uncle or, or your, your, your cousin, my son, no, your brother, your brother, I'll get it right in a minute. Well, all the wives, I mean, how do you get all this stuff straight? Your brother Absalom took my throne, a throne that didn't belong to him. My best friend Ahithophel turned his back on me. And Joab despised me and went the other way. Solomon God was faithful. Now Solomon doesn't have his father to rely on. Now he's the teacher, he's the Kohaleith, he is the son of David. He was king in Jerusalem, and you understand, there was a very small window in the realm of time where things were just right. You you understand that Saul was never supposed to be a king because there weren't supposed to be kings, right? And he took the throne, things started real good. And then he disobeyed God. And God removed his anointing, chose David. David, though, did many things and was a man after God's own heart. The apple of his eye had an affair with a woman and to cover it up had a man killed. Was a man who lived by the sword, a bloody man who could not build the house of God. And yet he prepared all the materials so his son could. And during that window of the latter part of David's life in the beginning of Solomon's reign, it seemed like things were right. But it did not negate what God told them when they wanted a king. Things would not go well for you because this is not my plan. He was king in Jerusalem. He was a man who was wealthy and wise. If you study history, you'll see that no doubt Solomon was possibly The wealthiest man to have ever lived on the face of the earth. Do you remember when the queen came? She said, I don't believe all this stuff you're telling me about Solomon. And so she went. She said, I got to see it for myself. I got to see it for myself. And when she got there, what did she say? Oh, king, the half has not been told. She was absolutely amazed at all the wealth and the splendor and the glory that that kingdom held. He was wealthy and we know when God came and said, I'll answer your prayer, what do you want? He said, I want to be wise and God answered that prayer. We see a story of two women arguing over a baby. Do we remember that story? Do we remember his wisdom and what he displayed? And how he played that thing, it, it sounds a lot like when they tried to trick Jesus. And Jesus would answer their question with a question. He said, Well, if you can't answer me, I'm not going to answer you. And Solomon saved the child's life and revealed the liar all in his decision. But you see, he was a king and a man who is exploitive and oppressive. We don't think about Solomon as this kind of man very often. We think of him as the son of David. We often think of him as a young boy. But here he's an older man. Now understand, as we begin to roll through this thing, you need to understand. I know this morning is going to be kind of historical, but it lays the groundwork for everything else. Solomon Solomon had 300 wives. I can't afford the one I got. 300 wives and 700 concubines. 1,000 women. He wasn't that wise. But let's go back. Let's go back to what the prophet told Israel when they wanted a king. What did he say? He said, if you get a king, he's going to take your land. Is that not what he said? Exploitive. He's going to tax you. You you see, here's one thing that Solomon did. And, and, And here's the deal. We can get on a bandwagon real easy if it looks like it's going to pad our pockets. If it looks like, oh, this is the greatest good for the most people. You ever heard that? It's called situational ethics. Solomon played it. And he took the 12 tribes of God's order and divided up into 12 tax districts rather than just the tribes. He began to exploit them. And he said, well, I need this land and I need that land. And when you go through Israel even to today, they'll say, well, that's Solomon's place. That's Solomon's Stables where he had thousands and thousands of horses. And to protect it, he would bring in slave labor and they would build the most extravagant buildings. There were, there were silos. Now you've got to understand, they didn't have tin and they didn't have wood. And, and, and I mean, they had some wood, but that's not what you see. When we put a little wooden manger up here, hey, I understand it, because it'd be real hard to tote around an authentic one. They would take a big rock. And they would take and chisel out the top of it to put water or feed in. That's a manger. That's what the animals would feed out of. Well, here, I I, I, I actually went up and got to see one. But they took and stacked rocks and like a silo, where your silo's out there with the corn in it, same size, but if you can imagine just going straight down in the ground. And then they would take the rocks and stick them out to make a spiral staircase that goes down. Down, down, where they could get it. And he had to have people work it. He had to peop- have people that fed. So where did he get them? He took their sons and daughters. He was exploitive. And he was oppressive. Where did you think he got all this stuff? But in all of that, he became very political and powerful. And this where the train ran off the tracks. Because as these queens and the kings of other nations began to come. And listen to me. Here's the spiritual thing. When the world sees God's blessings on your life, they're going to want the blessing without the responsibility. They're going to want just like the man walked up to Peter and said, I want to do tricks like y'all do. How much will it cost me? People want God's blessing without surrendering to his lordship. And so what happened was they came they said, hey, we want to get on board. We want to get some of this blessing. What's it going to cost us? I tell you what, why don't you marry my daughter? That's where the wives started coming from. And so pharaohs brought daughters. Rulers brought daughters. Dictators brought daughters. And Solomon married them as a way of building treaties among them. And in his mind, he's thinking, hey, I'm doing a great thing. I'm keeping my people safe by building this whole idea of diplomacy. We hear that? We, we believe in globalism and that if we'll just get along to go along, everything will be all right. Can I tell you something, church? When we go along and get along, and when we do not stand for the principles that are thus saith the Lord, that which is right, like the life of an unborn child, like the the, the rights of standing for what is right in praying and, and publicly defending the faith, when we subjugate and we capitulate all of the authority of God in our life to try to get along with the world, then we become political, trying to build our power base, and what we're doing is we're draining all the glory of God out of our life. It's called being seeker-sensitive or seeker-friendly. Now, we ought to be sensitive to people seeking for the Lord, but understand something. and hear me. God's bigger than our culture. God's bigger than your culture. There's different cultures even in this building today. Just in Claxton, there's Hispanic culture. There's Southern white culture. There's Southern black culture. There's different cultures that pervade. There's there's, uh, millennial culture. There's greatest generation culture. There's all this mishmash of culture coming at us at one time. But the one thing that remains is... Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. Amen? Amen. Solomon forgot that. And so he became very political. In all of these moves, he forgot about God. And so when it came to these days, as he began to pin down this last story to the world of everything going on in his life, notice he didn't pull his son in like David did. What was his son's name? Anybody remember? Jeroboam. And what happened with them two? Did one rule and the other didn't? And God kept order and Israel advanced? The kingdom split. Because their dad left a terrible testimony. He became old and empty. Listen to me, senior adults, those my age and above, we can either continue to grow in grace and the nurture and the admonition of the Lord, or we can just become old and empty. Other day I read about old Mr. Jones, who died at the age of 30, and they buried him at the age of 70. And for 40 years he walked around this earth, thinking that this is all there is, but he lived a life. death, For there was no life of Christ in him. That's what Solomon wants us to get here today. The second thing that we look at, not only the teacher, but we look at the students. The students, the word that this book is called, Ecclesiastes, literally means assembly. It's what we take our word in the Greek, church. Ecclesia, And so in the Septuagint, the Old Testament written in Greek, it would be Ecclesiastes. And that's where we take our English version. It is literally the title of the entire book. And so he says, I'm the teacher, I'm the preacher, I'm the coalesce, I am the one proclaiming to all of the assembly. We are the students of God's word today. And each day we're willing to open this book. We must read this book. You hear me? There's a lot of truth between Genesis 1-1, Psalm 23, Jeremiah 29 John 3-16, Philippians 4-13. There's a lot of truth in between those verses. There's a lot of truth. There's 1189 chapters, 66 books, 39 the old, 27 in the new, somewhere around 600,000 words in the Old Testament, 300,000 in the new. God's Word made manifest, incarnate, for it is the very presence of His Son with us today. And if we will open and read God's Word, you say, I don't read well. I didn't say you've got to read fast, I said you've got to read Read the Word of God. It is life-changing. I can stand here and just recite and orate all I want. How can a man that was old, empty, and broken write a book that would be contained in the canon of Scripture? Because God said so. He tells us in Revelation 1-3, and he's speaking expressly, about Revelation, but I believe it's cast over the whole Bible. Blessed is he that readeth this book and keeps it. Man, we'll read fishing reports. We'll read stock market reports. We'll read the newspaper. We'll read The crime report in the Claxton Enterprise. Sometimes before we read God's word, no wonder we got a crime report. We won't open the Word of God, young people. We spend all our time reading and looking at memes and vines and snaps and and YouTubes and all the things this world has to offer. And I'm not being funny. I'm not trying to be funny. There's somewhere you've got to understand that God is bigger than your little world. This is the laboratory of life that we're going to look at through the book of Ecclesiastes. So the students are the assembly or the readers. If you read God's word, you're a student. You're a student of the teacher. This teacher and the great one. What did they call Jesus? Rabbi. What does that mean? Teacher. Teacher. But not a teacher. Those who said rabbi and meant it meant the teacher. Jesus will instruct us in all manners of life. When you say there is just, this, this cannot make any sense. This is absolute obfuscation. There's no way to, co- to comprehend any of this stuff. I'm telling you. If you'll put your nose in this book, God will quicken it in your heart. Because he tells us in 2 Timothy 3, all scripture, all of it, all of it is given to profit us. It's given by inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God. God literally breathed it into man as Solomon sat there. And I don't know if his eyes became weak in his older days. I know that the Apostle Paul's did. And for most part, we believe that when Paul was inspired, he literally would have someone take down dictation, as he would call it out. We know we of know John Mark, and we know of you know, Titus, and Epaphroditus, and others in Paul's circle. And Paul, no doubt, would sit there, and his eyes weakened, and the thorn in the flesh, which some believe was malaria, and through headaches and stuff he would sit there and as he prayed, God would speak to his heart and he would say, son, you got everything ready to write? Yes, sir. God is speaking to my heart. Write this. Paul, an apostle, prisoner of the Lord. An apostle Of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Unto the church at Galatia. Unto the church at Thessalonica. Unto the church at Colossae. Unto the church at Ephesus. He spoke to Solomon. He spoke to David sitting on the backside of a sheepfold. He spoke to Joel and Amos. He spoke to Moses. He spoke to Luke and to Matthew. For none of these men were capable of doing the things that today do not contrast but comprehend one another because it is without error. It is infallible and profitable for every doctrine and reproof. We are the students, the assembly. We are the readers. It's to everyone. God's word is to everyone. Anyone can read the Bible. Do You know still to this day. Now, we believe the Old Testament. Job is probably the oldest book in authorship. But the oldest story is the Pentateuch. The first five books of the Bible. Moses authoring them. Does it ever strike you when you read the end of Deuteronomy that Moses wrote about his own death? He did. God told him what was going to happen. God gave him the direction. And he didn't write it in future tense. He wrote it in past tense. But I believe God did that. Because that's the way God. God do whatever he wants to. Am I right? And God ordered these things throughout time. Because it is for everyone. There, is, there was Christian killers. They, there are tax cheats. There there are stories of people that just, we we think that somehow they were above and they, they were the most holy of all holies. And no, they were human beings just like you and I that had to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And their faith in God was accounted unto them for righteousness. This book is for everyone. So I just don't understand it. Then read it and pray through it. But then the subject. What is the subject of this lab? The subject matter. Just as I said in my doctoral work, my subject was fasting and evangelism. The subject here we find in verse 2 and 3. Vanity of vanities, saith the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. You reckon that's important? He said it five times in one, one verse. Throughout the book of Ecclesiastes, it's used 38 times. 38 times, he says, uses the word vanity or vain. He uses words like vexation. It literally means an emptiness. First of all, we notice the subject to be profit and loss. What profit hath a man of all his labor which he taketh under the sun? Now, I'm I'm, going to ask this rhetorically. But Haven't you somewhere in your life asked the question, "What's the use? Why not even go to church? Seems like nothing goes right, man. Why pray? It's like who am I praying to? Lord, why not even try? My husband don't pay attention. My wife don't pay attention. Man, my boss he doesn't see anything I do good. My parents they think I do everything wrong. And Satan sells us on this lie." And we start believing that our life doesn't matter. I'm here to tell you, we're going to see throughout this book, your life matters to the Lord. You matter to the Lord. Jesus Christ loved you so much. You matter so much that he left heaven, born of a virgin, lived on this world, in this earth. Being tormented by the temptations and the evil that is Satan to die on a cross for your sin. Yeah, you matter. It's about profit and loss. The word profit's used 10 times, and it's only used in the Old Testament in the book of Ecclesiastes. It literally means advantage or gain. We like profit. We look at profit loss statements, right? We want to be in the black. Last year we had our budget meeting, Philip. Presented, man, it was great. You know, we we don't make a profit. We don't sell anything here at Esau. We, we don't have any marketable product. We don't make widgets. We don't sell. We are a, an entity that relies on God's people bringing their tithe into the storehouse of God. But we're not going to go out and peddle and stuff. And yeah, we'll we'll have a a cake auction, or we'll have a 5K run to raise everything. But ultimately, we should not be relying on the world to foot the bill for God's people. God's people came Wednesday night. We heard the wonderful testimony. People, who, The youth who have paid their deposit camps took care of. I mean, that's pretty close. I mean, that's pretty amazing, isn't it? Pretty amazing, isn't it? I mean, God does those kinds of things. Hey, listen to this. When we had our business meeting and approved the budget, we took, because we had surplus in the general fund, we took $15,000 to go toward paying off the bus. We bought that bus less than a year ago. Less than a year ago. It was $61,000 for that bus which we are using. Hey, senior adults, you need to sign up because y'all are all going to eat at Love Seafood. We're using it for senior adults. The children went out uh, uh, last Sunday night, Went made visits. On it. It's wonderful, isn't it? It's a wonderful tool that God's led us to do. $61,000. Our heart was pay half of it up front. We make payments. We said we're going to put $15,000 out of surplus. We got $4,000 something left. We have it paid off by Easter. Can I tell you already, as of the last, I don't know about today, but the last Sunday, all we owe is $2,104 on it. Let's go and pay it off by the end of February. We're going to have another note burning. I say all that to say this. When God's people who are called by His name humble themselves, when they give according to the blessings in their life, then you can't outgive God. The profit and loss will make sense, but He's going to tell us all the things of this world, getting ahead, putting up. It will never profit man to put those things first. He says it's a useless performance. You'll work all your life, all your life for somebody and they're going to give you a plaque? They may even give you a nice pocket watch. I used to always want pocket watches and I got several. Of them. I've never had a pocket watch that worked longer than a year. They always broke. Every one I ever had broke. Every one of them. Watches come and go. You get scratched up, broke, lost, whatever. Things. Things. Work all our life. Are we working all our life for things? Do we want to look back and say, oh, but I did this and I did that. And it's all. We'll just see what's going to happen. It's useless performance. Look at the subject of meaning and misery. The word vanity 38 times literally means emptiness. It it says that which vanishes quickly with nothing left behind. You remember blowing bubbles with the bubble stuff? Grandma's, you remember you do it now. But now they got cool things. They got these long pull these long things out, you can whip them, make these we had a little round. One. It's always round. But nonetheless You've seen a soap bubble, right? Right, See a soap bubble? You pop it. It's gone. That's life. It literally, our work, our men, is nothing but an empty soap bubble that when popped, vanishes, leaving no trace behind. The world, a hundred... And 50 years, if Jesus has not come back, now listen to me. For the average person, and I'm below that, but for the average person, 150 years from now, your immediate descendants won't even remember your name. And if they do, it will be on some website. When they get old, they will learn about the people who They could have learned about when they were alive. Then we get old and we won't learn about them. Find out our ancestry. The truth is, in meaning and misery, it's all vanity. It's vanity. What matters is like what David told Solomon. But Solomon said, I didn't do that. And it's too late. It's nothing I can do. We went for a college visit Friday and Saturday. Took Ethan on a college visit and walked to campus and talked to coaches and presidents and professors and admissions and all that kind of stuff. And Beautiful campus, walked around. Bottom line is this. I'm still going to be his dad. Especially when he needs something. But there's a certain part of life That if I hadn't got it done, it's too late. You hear me, parents with little kids? It's too late. It's too late. If I haven't poured in the right things and taught them certain things, it's too late. There's some things he's going to have to learn the hard way between him and the Lord. And there's some things that I will stand accountable because I did not do it. But I can't go back and fix it now. It's done. And Solomon said, in life there's meaning and misery. But in this world, it's all vanity. Fullness and futility. Look, look in verse 8. All things are full of labor. Man cannot utter it. The eyes not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. Everything. Full of, Full of labor. So much that man can't even utter it. And yet, it's all futile. It's futile. You know, we can look and say, boy, I did a really good job on this cake. Man, this is a beautiful, beautiful cake. This is probably the best cake I've ever made. But the better it is, the quicker it's gone. Right? And the only thing you can do is make another one. Because that one's gone. You can't live on that cake for the rest of your life. It's futile, our lives, without the Lord. But look at the setting. Now we're walking into the, walking into the lab, okay? We know we've already got our syllabus. We know who our professor is our name's on the top, we're on the list, we're, we're subjects in here. And the subject of the whole matter, he said, this is what we're going to look at. Profit and loss, meaning and misery, fullness and futility. What is life? Does life matter? Now we see the setting. As we walk in with all, you can imagine, in your old science lab, I'm seeing mine. In Miss Keith's biology lab right now at McEachern High School. Just had a cold chill. Verse three: What prophet hath a man? I can see her up there. She was about this tall, and so she made us all stay seated so she could see us. And she would walk around, and she wouldn't. She she was she was a science teacher. What are you going to say? She wouldn't say, "Hey, Mister Bray, how are you doing today?" Hey, Matt, good to see you. Hey, Becky, I'm so glad y'all know. She'd start off class once we got there and the bell rung. And she would do something like this. Turn with me in your books today. And we're going to explore the hypothesis. On whether there's a prophet. In all that we do. Here on this earth. That's what Solomon's doing. Solomon is presenting to us. The hypothesis. What profit, what idea of gain is there in this life? He says, what profit hath a man of all his labor which he takes under the sun? Though This is a very interesting phrase and it's going to matter a lot throughout this book. Under the sun, under the sun, it's used 29 times. Now, vanity is used 20, uh, 38 times. We always think of you know, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. We think about that throughout the book. We don't think about this term, under the, under the sun. What he literally means is where we live. Because look in verse 4. One generation passeth away, and another generation cometh, but the earth abideth forever. What he's saying is nobody is bigger than their surroundings. One day I started to try. I started trying to count how many cemeteries I had officiated funerals at, and I lost track just in Georgia. Much less Alabama, Tennessee, and other states where I'd traveled to do interments. And you know, I can ride today, and I could go back to the oldest cemetery in Powder Springs and walk through it, and it's going to look just like it did when I cut grass there when I was 14 years old. Except some of it, they have filled out some numbers on some of the stones. It's the only change. Some places I used to cut grass you can't cut anymore because now it's filled in and covered in marble. The setting is under the sun. We're looking at life today. Can we live for the Lord today in life matter? Can we, do you ever think, is this all there is? Is this all there is? We heard Wednesday night from a couple, from, from Harris and his wife. Been married 46 years. And he said, Yeah. When you look at each other in the love that is Christ and you understand we're his beloved and we can love. Yeah, life matters. But we heard someone who said, you know, there's times in life where you say, is it worth it? Is it worth putting up with how he does stuff and her attitude? Is it worth living? It just seems like all we do. You ever ever ask somebody, said, how you doing? And they say, oh, about the same. Or some will say, oh, same suit, just warmed over. Same stuff, different day. And we get into what we call the rut, don't we? We dread Mondays. We call Wednesdays hump days because we're looking forward to we can get out and go for this little short respite. I don't know who ever planned on five days a week and two weekends why they didn't get that. I think it got it backwards. Why we couldn't all just agree we're gonna work two days and be off five. <laughs> Amen. I mean, be honest. If you're one of them that like to work five days, something ain't right with you. You see, we're under the sun, generations come and go. But the earth remains the same. As it continues to revolve on its axis. I've watched these things. They used to call it jaywalking. Jay Leno would walk the streets and now these other people would walk, stick a microphone in somebody's face, and ask them questions like, how many flags is on the, how many stars is on the United States flag? And I had a lady in my first church absolutely convinced. She she absolutely, she was spitting mad at me when I told her there wasn't but fifty. She said, there's fifty-two. And it wouldn't come. When I took her to the flag, held it out, I said, You're smart enough, count. I'm not gonna count for you, you count. There's 50 states, there's not 52. Yes, we have territories. We have Guam and we have Puerto Rico, but there's only 50 states. The last two states, Alaska and Hawaii, backing up to the original 13 colonies, of which Georgia was one. Look, if you can't figure it out, go to the bank and ask for all the state quarters. They're going to give you 50 state quarters, 50 different states. People don't get it. People don't understand because we, we, we don't understand that the world's bigger than just us. We think this is all there is. I'll never forget, we went on a mission trip when I pastored in Alabama And we took a group with us. And we were going to York, Pennsylvania. And we left South Alabama. And our church sat 18 miles from the Florida line. 75 miles due north of Destin, Florida. Prettiest beaches just about in the world. White sand. Just a beautiful place. We loaded on the vans and... We started out and we stopped just over the line up in the tri-state area between North Alabama, Tennessee, and the northwest corner of Georgia. When you're going up the expressway that way, you'll go in and out of each state about two or three times. It's just, it jogs through the mountains right there. And we stopped at a Cracker Barrel to eat. I will never forget this. Becky knows what I'm about to say. There was this one couple with their two children. They were just younger than us, probably about five to eight years younger than us. And they get off, and their eyes are big. Man, they're looking around. And they walk in and sit down, and they hold. wow, what is their deal? And all of a sudden, I said, what are you going to get? He said, I don't know. You got any suggestions? I said, well, yeah, but, I mean, you've ate a cracker. It's the first time we've ever been to a Cracker Barrel. And we got talking. It's the first time they'd ever been out of the state of Alabama. They lived below the church. They lived 12 miles from the Florida line. Never been out of the state of Alabama. I'm not exaggerating. Becky, am I kidding? They saw Cracker Barrel. Oh, it was just getting started. went through Tennessee. They got to see the Shenandoah Valley. They got to go through Washington, D.C. We went to York, Pennsylvania, and did a week's worth of missions, inner city in the first capital of the United States of America. You didn't know that, did you? Where we signed the Articles of Confederation against the British Empire. was not in Washington, D.C. It was in York, Pennsylvania. And we spent all that, and they got to see all that's new because they said, "Boy, this is a big world." (laughs) Wow, man, this place is big. I've always heard there was these other places because they always played Alabama football, but I didn't know it really existed. (laughs) The setting is under the sun, it's where we live. You see, nature is planned. God has a plan. He said in verse 5, the sun riseth; the sun goes down and hastes to his place where he rose. The wind goes toward the nor- uh, south, turns about unto the north. It whirleth about continually and the wind returns again according to his circuits. All the rivers run into the sea, yet the sea is not full. Unto the place from whence the rivers come, thither they return again. Man thinks we've figured all that out. We, we've messed it up. Wing fix. I got news for you. God's got control. God's got control. It is God's creation. It's God's nature. It's God's order. This is where we live. But not only under the sun, but under heaven. What does this mean? It's our earthly perspective. You see, there's under the sun and over the sun. There's under heaven and above heaven. When Paul died, we believe... We see in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 that he was called up to the third heaven. Which is not the Mormon's explanation of three levels of heaven. But we believe in the three heavens in the sense of our atmosphere, where the birds fly, and where the air is, all that's the first heaven. We dwell under heaven, the eternality of heaven we dwell in the first heaven. The second heaven is where they're flying rockets out there, where there is no air, where there is no gravity, where all the galaxies and the nebulae are. That's the second heaven. But when you go past there, that's where God lives. That's the third heaven. That's eternity. And that's what he's telling us. We live under heaven. It's our earthly perspective, which is we're never satisfied. We're never satisfied. Nothing ever satisfies us. Just like that cake. Becky, when we had to replace our refrigerator, we found an Amish bread starter. Any of you ever had Amish bread? It's just good. Well, my wife must have Amish blood in her because hers is, extra, as my dad say, extra good. It's extra good. She puts cinnamon in some, she puts bananas. Some of you's had it. Would you not testify it's good? Amen. It's good stuff. But you know, once it's made, then you have this little starter that's left over. You have to worry. Yeah. And, and, and we eat that one, well then it's gone, then you have to make another one, then you have to make another one. And, and you know, you think, I just spent $286 at Walmart. And you think I'm set. And four days later, your wife says, hey, can you stop by Dollar General? (laughs) We just spent a whole check at Walmart. What do we need now? We're out of cereal. We're out of milk. Need some Diet coats. Or anything without aspartame if you're one of those. Listen, nature's plan, it's God's order. It's under heaven, but we're never satisfied. Now, here's the experiment, and I want to go quickly. Is life really worth living? Because he said, all is vanity. All things are full of labor. Man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. The thing that hath been is that which shall be and that which is done is that which shall be done and there is no new thing under the sun is there anything whereof it may be said see this is new it been already of old time which was before us he's speaking once again of our futility look at verse 11 there is no remembrance of the former things neither shall there be any remembrance of the things that are to come with those that shall come hereafter. I want you to understand something. As we begin through this study, we must ask ourselves, is life really worth living? Because if he said all is vanity, if everything vexes our spirit, then why get married? Why not just shack up? Why not just eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die? Who was the famous queen who they beheaded, who the, myth, the, the urban legend says the, her last words were, let them eat cake. Let them eat cake. It's amazing what we think when we take God out of the equation. Is there a plan and purpose for this life? He tells us he's got a plan for the wind He's got a plan that when the water falls and it runs into the lakes and the streams and the rivers, which empties into the, uh, uh, the ocean. How many of you have ever went to Jamaica and went to Dunn's River Falls? It's one of the coolest places you'll see. There's seven rivers that run through the small island of Jamaica. And in one place over by Ocho Rios, all seven of them merge and when they merge, they become a fall that runs down and, it, and you can literally walk from the top of the fall or climb up it. I would advise start at the top and go down it. But when you go down it, you can literally follow this freshwater stream that seven tributaries have fed into and walk it straight out onto the beach and into the ocean. It's a cool thing. But then the water's going to evaporate. We're going to watch when the clouds build and the sun shines through and the rays. That's not That's water particles going up as it's fixing to make its revolution and dump it back on the land. And it's going to go down. God has an order. Listen to me. There is a plan and purpose for nature. There's a plan and purpose for your life. We're going to see it in Ecclesiastes. Is this all there is? He said, what about all this effort? In this life, we live under the sun and under heaven. When we get this book, when we get God in perspective, then we'll realize there's something over the sun. And His name is Jesus. And the verse that we'll be able to live and understand is this. In 1 Corinthians 15, 58, Therefore, my beloved brethren... Be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work, not the labor, but the work of the Lord. For as much as you know, your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Solomon says all this world is vanity. Paul says that which is done in the power and the authority of God's call on your life is not vain. Now your question As we begin this study is, where am I at? Am I living, trying to get everything I can grab? Living for the gusto? Am I trying to get everything I can milk out of this life? But my priority is not God. Solomon is beginning to tell us he took his eyes off God. His his priority became the world. And it eat him up. As one old philosopher said, it became the worm that had corroded and eat his cane from the inside out so that there was nothing left for King Solomon to lean upon today as they come to the instruments I know this is not the revival hoop it up this is God's word and it is a sad I don't know about you but it's sobering you know there's times that that People have given me good advice, and it's very encouraging. And they pat me on the back, or they say, hey, you know, for somebody not very bright, you did all right right there, you know. But then there's that, son, you need to listen to me. What I'm about to tell you is not going to be fun, but you need to get this. You need to understand life's not all a party. You need to understand God has a plan and purpose for you in your life. And it's not always going to be enjoyable. But it is going to be worth it. You've got to ask yourself today, is your plan and God's plan the same plan? Or are you living in the vanity of this world that's nothing but a bubble that at any moment could burst that will leave no evidence that it ever existed. What's your pleasure? you want to live in the fullness that is Christ? Do you keep wondering, I want to do more because I know God's going to bless me, but I'm afraid of the stuff I'm going to give up. Can I tell you what you got to give up to serve God? Sin. That's all you got to give up. Sin. Give sin up. Live for the Lord. Be blessed. That's the way it works. Come trust Jesus. Stand and come. Come to Jesus. Don't wait like Solomon until it's too late. Come to Jesus now.